You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called A Thrill of Hope, focusing on the much-needed and long-expected coming of Jesus that brought the ultimate and eternal hope of salvation. Thanks for joining us. Two-part series on the thrill of hope. Obviously, last week we got snowed out, so I'm going to do that preacher thing where I shove too much content into 35 minutes uh, and see if any of it makes sense. Um, but when I was when I was about 16, I got ambushed to go on a mission trip to uh, Cabrini Green in Chicago. Uh, Cabrini Green was built in the 1930s uh, as a government federal uh, upstart to kind of fight against poverty. You know, in the middle of uh, or in the aftermath of the Great Depression. And uh, it no longer is standing. In 2001, they tore it down. There was something like 15,000 people living in it uh, at the time when we went to go visit it. And my youth pastor just kind of like signed me up and supported me to go without me really knowing it uh, because I guess he thought it would be a really good time. So we went out to Chicago, um, and I had been a lot of places in my life and witnessed a lot of poverty in other countries, but there was something different about the kind of poverty you found in Cabrini Green, Chicago, because... uh, it was, it was like projects and poverty in the middle of opportunity. Like it's one thing to be a poor person in a poor country. It's, it's quite another thing to be like in this paradoxical uh, civil, like city within a city, this poor place within the otherwise landscape of a very rich environment in Chicago. You had some of the best shopping places and the best restaurants and the best celebrities and the coolest you know, Michael Jordan's playing down the street at the United Center. You have like this apex of wealth in Chicago. But inside Chicago, you have the city within a city where there's just like poverty that entrenches these people and like 15,000 people. And so we went down there and you would just hear about from the guide that shared uh, on, on the debrief time uh, some of the most atrocious things that can happen to a human being. Um, young or old, male or female, any race within the confines of poverty. It's like they're telling stories about just six-year-olds, like out on the street, you know, waving down drug dealers and, and, and warning uh, drug dealers in the area whether or not, like, police are coming. Like, at six years old, like, these kids would have, like, a gun on them and be watching out for police officers. And, you know, like, the health and the and the, and the contamination in these apartments was unspeakable, was unheard of. You know, like somebody would just pass away in one of these apartments and they just, nobody would do anything about it. They would just be sitting there, you know, the, the, the deceased person would just be in this room and nobody would ever do anything about it. And, and, and actually, sometimes they just talk about, they would find out that because the thing wasn't being occupied, there's such a lack of dignity, such a lack of value, that they would just like kick the door in and use it as extra space to, to store stuff and store trash and do all this stuff. And so, like I said, I remember understanding the idea of national poverty, but the idea of kind of local poverty in the midst of kind of citywide wealth and prosperity was just such a paradox to me. It was such a juxtaposition that didn't make sense. And at 16 years old, I remember, like, asking the question, why don't people just, like, move out of the projects? Like, why don't, why don't you just, like, get a job out here and just go live out here and go move your family out here? Like, obviously, the things in here are broken, and just across the way, if it was across the ocean, it'd be something else. But if it's across the street, it's like, what's, what's the barrier? What kind of barrier would be so strong? What kind of you know, um, wall would be so tall that you couldn't climb over the barrier to just, like, get to this land of opportunity. To be lacking uh, options in the middle of the land of opportunity seemed to make no sense. And I remember um, the guy who was sharing about his, you know, mission work that he had been working there for years and years and years, and, and he obviously knew that I'd understand what he'd understood, and, and that is that 
Like, there's a difference between um, poverty and brokenness surrounding you, and there's a difference between that and, and poverty and brokenness getting inside of you. That uh, after a period of time that a human being living in any place, any city, doesn't have to be across the world, it could be down the street, living in an environment uh, of an outer world of hopelessness and brokenness, sooner or later it's inevitable that that outer world of hopelessness and brokenness crawls its way into the inner place of, of hopelessness and brokenness. And that's a treacherous thing. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible thing. That's a, like, like you know, there, there's, a, there's a way, you know, there's mercy and there is, um, you know, welfare. There is um, people in, around Christmas time being generous at the Salvation Army. There's, there's things that you can do for the material wealth that can be lost and, and leave somebody's hands here on this earth. But, but, but once that place, the guy would talk about, once that place of brokenness that place of hopelessness would get its way, would crawl its way into the heart of a, of a man, woman, or child. It'd be very difficult to see it uprooted. And so there's this, like, this feeling, and some of you guys have been on mission trips like this, and, and some of you guys have, have work in schools with, with children like this. Some of you guys, all of us in some way, have, have engaged poverty to, to one degree or another, financial poverty, that is. Um, but, but you know the feeling of hopelessness that sets in when you paint that, playground and you leave it. You know, you pick up the little heroin needles and, and you pick up the trash and you paint the playground and you know that when you come back there in a year, like, it probably won't make that much of a difference because, because poverty is deeper set than just playgrounds. It's deeper set than just paychecks. It's deeper set than the money that you give to somebody, you know, or even the short amount of time that you spend with, with somebody. There has to be a deeper work than just the exchange of benevolence. There has to be a change from the inside. There has to be uh, a hope that is built inside of, of a man, woman, or a child. And so I want to speak just for a couple minutes today on this subject because I think it's relevant. I think that there's a reason why there's so many um, sermon series and Chip and Joanna Gaines have something called The Thrill of Hope this year. And my friend Rich Butler has a church called Hope Church that he created, that he started, and it's, it's called Hope Church because that, that word resonates. You know, 10,000 Fathers who David Walker came and played worship a couple weeks ago um, their whole series that they're doing right now, you know, with their school is called The Thrill of Hope. Like um, Rick Warren, the, the, great, the guy that wrote The Purpose Driven Life, um, you know, his son passed away, committed suicide a couple of years ago after he was in the middle of a series called Hope. And, and he has a daily podcast and he decided to call it Hope. And I don't think it's a mistake because I, I think that the spirit and hopefully the church and the bride is responding to a real prophetic outcry that people are are realizing you don't have to be in Cabrini Green to be lacking hope, that there is an epidemic of hopelessness, that, that the statistics show, even in a short review from Google last night, that the statistics show that like, our, our generation is more hopeless than ever, really. I mean, we're doing fine. We have enough money now, and, and we feel like everything's okay, and the world's not coming down, and Korea doesn't have their finger over the button yet or whatever, but there's this sense that now is okay, but the future might not be okay, like for the very first time. And so there's this epidemic of, of hopelessness. And, and this is the quote I'll have on the screen, but hopelessness um, doesn't always meet us um, in poverty. It can, meet us, it can meet us in the place of wealth, in the, in the place of affluence. Hopelessness doesn't need poverty to meet us. And hopelessness doesn't always manifest into poverty. Like hopelessness um, can be seated in the heart of a person that isn't part of a gang and isn't shooting up drugs and isn't, you know, in prostitution. It's like hopelessness can hit anybody and meet anybody 
Actually, hopelessness has less to do with your surroundings in the outer place and has more to do with your perspective and position on the inner place. Hopelessness um, can meet you uh, regardless of your race, socioeconomic background, or anything else. Hopelessness can meet us um, at the fear that our children aren't listening to us anymore and really realizing our, our influence with them isn't as strong as it once was, our trust with them isn't as strong as it, as, as it once was, or, or, or hopelessness potentially um, can meet us in the place of powerlessness of sin over our life. Um, it looks like we have hope on, on the outside. It looks like our stocks are maturing, and it looks like our, our marriage looks good on the outside, and our kids are doing good, and there's these other areas on the out, outer world that's doing well. But, but th- there can be, at the same time, this dualistic temptation, this sin that rules over our heart, and because we feel like the future is scary and because we're powerless to resist the temptation in our life, in any given season, there's this sense of hopelessness that comes in. And it doesn't look like drugs and prostitution. It just looks like apathy. It just looks like sarcasm. It just looks like lethargy. It looks like lack of purpose and lack of focus. It just looks like I'm just trying to get through and get by. And, and so hopelessness can, can meet us in all these ways. If somebody were to betray us, it, when we feel abandoned, we, we, we default to hopelessness. That we probably are alone. And if something were to happen to me, if, if I were to lose my way, if I were to fall off track, I don't know if anybody would call. I don't know if anybody would care. I don't know if God would care. And that's where hopelessness can meet us. That can happen to anybody. It doesn't have to be somebody in, in Cabrini Green. And hopelessness can actually root itself down into society. Um, and, and again, in the wealthy societies of the world. This is the quote that, um, actually, this, this is the quote that Rick Warren read um, a few months after uh, the death of his son, like when he returned to preach. And he talked about hopelessness and, and hope within the context of hopelessness. And he said, it's out of Job, actually, but it's throughout the Scripture. Like, a society, when it loses um, faith in God, uh, a society without God is a society without hope. And so uh, he has this long list, and, and I think it's really true and really stirring if you think about uh, the implications of how much can be done um, if the inner world is fueled by hope and how much can be broken if the inner world is given way to the brokenness of hopelessness. Not just that I'm in a bad place, but I'll never be in a better place. You know, that the future is scary and I'm powerless to change it. This is what would happen if it would take on a national consciousness that hope isn't here and God isn't for us and God doesn't care and God isn't with us. This is, this is what you would see. He says, if, if a nation didn't have hope, then wealth would be idolized and truth would be minimized. If we didn't have hope, then life would become trivialized. If America lost track of hope, then sex would be commercialized, television would be vulgarized, Education would be secularized. Without hope, free markets become monopolized. Drugs are legalized. Politics paralyzed. Race is polarized. Broken families rationalized. Christians demonized. And God marginalized. Does any of that ring true for, for you and your experience of your peers and of this generation? And I'd probably add to the list that not only these things, but probably the most permanent of measures is that all these things become normalized. Like that's the scary thing is that it doesn't just happen once, that it's the kind of ongoing projection of what the future would be. Like this is normal. It's just normal. Like divorce is normal, you know? 
and, 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 and struggle and, and kind of not, not growing in the Lord, like, like being, if we're in church, let's say, stuck in a certain spot and not seeing breakthrough in that spot, that's just like normal. That becomes normal. And that is kind of the, the, the Achilles heel, wouldn't you say, of, of the strength of a person. Like if you can break their hope, can't you break everything about them? Like if they don't believe into the future that the future is preferred and that God is for us and that the future is for glory and for good and for grace. Like if you could break that inside the heart of a man, woman, or child, wouldn't you have them? Wouldn't that be the, utter of their, the rudder of their ship? So Christmas, the reason why we want to call this series a thrill of hope is because Christmas is all about hope. And the hard thing is, is that a lot of times Christmas hits us with hopelessness because we feel like everybody else has hope and we don't have hope. And we feel like if next year looks anything like last year, there's nothing really to hope in or hope about. And we don't talk about this stuff out loud, but it's, it's the internal monologue between the ears of our mind, you know, and, and in our heart. This is what kind of takes grip of us. But Christmas is an invitation to a relentless hope. This is the thing about Jesus. Jesus entered into, and I want to come back to this towards the end of our time, but Jesus entered into what basically Timothy explained it really, really well just now on the keys when he said there's this this cloak of silence, this brooding darkness, this sense of hopelessness, really. He came to the world in that brooding environment of hopelessness. And by the time he left it, where he came to a world without hope, he left the world without hopelessness. And so, without getting ahead of myself, the, the, the real truth of the matter here is um, that hopeless Christian is an oxymoron. And, and hopelessness had no place in Christ. Hopelessness around Christ and brokenness around Christ existed, but, but God was too full of hope to have hope even visit him, let alone stay. Jesus never walked a day in the shoes of hopelessness. He never carried hopelessness for a moment um, in his life. And so, uh, you know, one of, my, um, one of my favorite Christmas movies is the movie Elf. And one of my favorite Christmas lines is when Buddy the Elf, Will Ferrell, leans over um, to the fake Santa Claus and says, uh, he says, you're not the real Santa. And Santa says, uh, yes, I am. And then remember he says something like, well, uh, what song did I, I sing you on your birthday? And Santa Claus goes, happy birthday, of course. He's ah, got him. And then he says, he like leans over and he's throwing a, a fuss because like he just can't, he won't put up with it. I mean, he, he can't put up with the fact that there's like a fake imposter in a red suit pretending to be Santa. And he leans over and he says, you're not Santa. You smell like beef and cheese. And then he leans over and he says, you sit on a throne of lies. It's like, but one of the things I want to encourage us with this, this morning um, is, is actually Satan's identifier. Like when Jesus wants to explain to his disciples like who Satan is, he's like, Satan is the father of lies. He's the accuser of brethren, and he's the father of lies. And everything he says is a lie. It's a distortion. And, and so I, I want to encourage you, not, not dishearten you, to say this is who Jesus is, so get better. I, I want to I encourage you, though, that if you've been visited by hopelessness, that that, that hopelessness isn't a, a, a feeling or a fact even. That hopelessness categorically is a lie. So you think about it this way. Outside of Christ, hopelessness is real. 
No God, no hope. Inside of Christ, hopelessness isn't a fear. Hopelessness isn't a statistic or of I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Like, that's not, like, hopelessness is a spiritual endeavor at its base, and it is a lie. Hopelessness, like the, 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 the government of hopelessness, the culture of hopelessness, the belief that the future is not profitable, the future is not preferred, and I've got nothing to do to change it. That sense of powerlessness and hopelessness in Christ is, is, uh, is overturned. It's canceled. And I wish I had time to talk about it. This would have been my part two of the series. But, like, there's an assignment of hopelessness in the world. Like, Herod goes to snuff out Jesus when he's an infant and says it's under the guise of worship. He's like, I want you to go and find this baby so I can go and worship him, which is a complete lie. But how many of you guys know that we're not attacked by persons or personalities? We're always attacked by principalities. And Herod was sent on a mission, and he sent the wise men on a mission to kill him. But how do you guys know that the good news of Christ is that even the assignments of hopelessness were canceled once they saw the glory of God, and the people that were sent to kill him instead bowed down to worship him? So there's nothing like the real thing, and there's nothing like true hope, and we're not talking about optimism, and I believe the light's going to turn green. We're not talking about optimism. We're talking about truth. This is the truth. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth of the kingdom of God. This is the truth of Christ is that hope then in Christ is not optimism, uh, a wish that's blown out on a candle at a birthday party. Hope, hope isn't an emotion. Like, you're not having hope. You can't discover or discern if you have hope today on Sunday morning based on how you feel, and it's not a mantra. Hope is a fact. Hope is a fact. And, 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 and so anything in your heart and anything in your mind Right now, even, like before we get into the scriptures, I want you to process with me, but like anything in your heart and in your mind that isn't glimmering in the radiance of the hope of Christ is a lie. It's under deception. It's distorted. It might have facts in it, but it's not true. It might have temporary truth, but it doesn't have eternal truth in it. And so the good news of Jesus is that whether our emotions or our perspective or even our theology agree with hope, it doesn't change or cancel hope because hope is bigger than our situation. And, and hopelessness is a lie while hope is the truth. Verse 1 in Matthew, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Thus there were 14 generations in all of Abraham and David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. So it's 14 generations to David, 14 generations to Babylon, and then 14 generations again to the Messiah, totaling to 42 generations of promises uh, deferred. 14 generations of birth to death, sons and daughters and families looking forward to an Abrahamic and a Davidic covenant, a future with God and a future where God is for us. Abraham was promised that God would be, be with him everywhere he went. He was a set-apart nation to bless other nations, and so he was a, a, a localized uh, conduit of God's mercy and blessing on the earth. Him and his descendants were going to be covenantally and relationally bound with God, but there was a second covenant that was given to David, which would mean they wouldn't only have uninterrupted relationship with God, but they would have reign and rule, that, that the Messiah was not just going to come and bless them, but to come and lift them up to, be, to, be, to reign in the world, to, to bring his authority and his power 
in the world. This was the promise that they waited for 42 generations. And so the landscape of Christmas, really, the very first Christmas, isn't unlike some of us in this room, the landscape that we look forward to December 25th with, is that the landscape of the very first Christmas was deeply uh, and perilously hopeless. It's like 42 generations of people wondering if he's coming tomorrow, which they lived way longer I multiplied it by 30 years. If a generation is 30 years, and it's something like 1,200 years. But we know that some of these people live like hundreds of years. And so it would go on and on and on and on. But we're talking about thousands of years of people just waiting and waiting and waiting for this hope. They knew a hope was out there, but they didn't know where to look. They didn't know where to put their hope. They just had this feeling uh, of hope that was flimsy. But they didn't have this confidence of hope that they could, they could plant their, their confidence upon. And, and, and so this is, this is the genealogy of Jesus. It reminds us that, that hopelessness, um, historically, in the Bible and outside the Bible, has always been rooted in statistics. The way that we nurture hopelessness is we do math too long. Uh, whether or not you like math class, I didn't, so it's like a double entendre for me. Um, but the way, that we, the way that we get really hopeless is to stare at statistics and to think too pragmatically, although statistics are great for interpreting the past, they're really horrible, especially in faith and interpreting the future. Statistics tend to lie to us that the, that the past will repeat, them, will repeat itself. That's what statistics are designed you know, to do. But we forget things like, we remember the, you know, the negative statistics and the downward you know, trends within society, but we forget the positive ones. Like you think about like in the 1950s, what, four out of 10, or 40, 45%, rather, 45% of, of all men, women, and children smoked. And so capitalism plus um, addiction would tend to think that in 2018, we'd only have more with the power of marketing and commercialism, but yet we have 23%. We tend to expect, because of negative statistics, that things that are bad are always going to get worse, but, but the reality is that things do get bad, but then they also can get better, and typically, people that forge you know, preferred futures into the future are people that listen to statistics but don't give authority to them. So, for example, in like the 1830s, during the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, most, if not you know, a heavy, heavy, hefty majority of, of African people within the United States of America were slaves. Women didn't vote. Um, the health expectancy was you know, 45 years old or whatever it was. And they sold cocaine across the counter and all these crazy things that you can't imagine used to happen. And, and, and we forget about the power of God through the first and second great awakenings. And the first and second great awakenings are these revivals that took place in the 1830s and the 1840s. And that's like Jonathan Edwards, you know, and George Whitfield and these guys. And they had these open air tent revivals with all these salvations. And how many of you guys know that the, the revival that started in that tent resulted in a renaissance that happened all throughout the nation? And many of the abolitionist movements and many of the women's rights movements and the labor movements and the education movements and things that changed in our nation happened because of the threshold of faith and the pioneers of faith that said, I'm not listening to statistics. I'll read them, but I'm listening to the scriptures. And a hopeless generation will listen to the news, but just read the Bible. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll read the Bible, but they, they won't give authority to it. They'll give authority to the news. They'll give authority to the statistics. But the pioneers of faith, both in terms of business or in terms of, in this sense, the kingdom of God, they, they didn't, 
you know, they listened to the news, they read the news, they were aware of the surroundings, but they didn't allow those things to have authority on them because reality is that the future is typically forged not by statistics, but by faith. And the future is typically forged uh, by, by pioneers and by the few, not by the many. And so I want to challenge you and think about this. Like, if Jesus was a man of statistics, he left 12 guys behind and potentially 120 guys in an upper room. If Jesus was a, was a guy of statistics, would he have died with hope or not? The answer to that question is pretty simple. Like, Jesus had too much faith to afford to live by statistics, to live by circumstances, to live by surroundings, to live by, you know, forecasted futures. He, listened, he was aware of those things, but he never gave authority to those things. The, the authority in his life was always the Scriptures and always the Holy Spirit. And Paul is, like, ready to go and start the, very, the church, the very hope of the world, and he's, like, in a prison cell. Like, if he lived by statistics, is that, like... How far would he get in his mission, in his calling, in his, in, in, in his, in his purpose if he listened to, to statistics? And so the genealogy of Jesus reminds us that hopelessness is nurtured by statistics, but hope, hope needs to be nurtured in the Scriptures. And so there's three things that we'll look at in the Scriptures today because everybody responded to Jesus differently. Everybody responded to the statistics of the genealogy of Jesus differently. Everybody in the audience of the birth of Jesus looked at Jesus differently, but Mary and Joseph managed to find hope on Christmas. Hope on, in, in the midst of a hopeless Christmas. Hope in the midst of a dreams deferred and promises of God deferred season. They decided to, um, to listen to Scripture and listen to the authority of the Holy Spirit to hear about a faith-filled future rather than a statistics-filled future. And so uh, Joseph and Mary, we'll look at this. There's actually three things that I want to point out. But it says, this is how, and I love that God is showing them how. The Old Testament didn't have a how. They just had a hope, but they didn't have a how. It's somewhere out there. We don't know how, though, that we're going to get delivered to a future that God is with us and God is for us, uninterrupted all the time. But this says in verse 18, this is how it happened. And so the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. The mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. uh, But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That's just such a big uh uh-oh moment, like... I just read that and I just feel embarrassed for everybody involved. I'm like, oh no, that's not good. <laughs> pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, if you didn't go to seminary or something like that, or you didn't, you know, weren't privy to New Testament theology, that's awkward. I mean, that's just a really, you know, that's like a talk show awkward or something. Something crazy just happened when you read that. So because Joseph, uh, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her uh, quietly. The first thing I think that helps Joseph and Mary and can help us um, not see our hope deferred, but plant our hope in a place that's secure, put our hope in a place that deserves our hope, and to see our hope strengthened in the midst of a hopeless world, um, is this. It says, Joseph and Mary found hope on Christmas when they, dis- listen, when they discerned the difference listen, between holiness and the Holy Spirit. It's like, here's the thing is, you admire Joseph. He's a great biblical character who exemplifies faith in the one window of opportunity we see in this episode of his life. He loves the Lord, is faithful to the law, and cherishes his wife, walks forward even in his plan in a very holy way. Wants to love the Lord as God and wants to love others, including his wife as himself. That's quite different and quite apart from what happens next when the Holy Spirit gets involved and does what no other man for 42 generations could do which was, was to bring the promised son, to bring the promised Messiah. So Joseph was faithful to the law and love Mary, 
but he was hopeless without the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, the genealogy of Jesus is essentially 42 generations of pretty great dudes and gals. These aren't scrubs. This isn't like the JV team. This is like Moses and David and Aaron. Like these are great guys who did great things. And at the end of it, didn't have enough to give birth to the Messiah. This is what it says in the end of the anthology of the genealogy of Jesus in verse 16. It says, in Jacob, watch this, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So if you look at the family line, who is it that provides for the seed of Jesus? In other words, there's 42 generations of, of men carrying down faith and promise and providence and principles and carrying these things down. Good men doing good things. Great men doing great things even. Faithful men doing faithful things. And even by the end of this genealogy line, it still didn't add up to be enough because the Holy Spirit had to be involved. And so I don't have as much time as I'd like to get into it, but I just want to say this on this point is that us doing good things and leading good marriages, teaching good classrooms, um, preparing for sermons, leading small groups, um, eldering, being a deacon, like these things are good things. And we want to commit ourselves to these good things, but people that have hope, people that are, are thrilled with hope, people that are fueled with hope are not putting their trust in good things. Or holiness, they're putting their trust in the Holy Spirit. If, if we want to see a family that's healthy, if you want to see, uh, if you want to go on a mission trip and see strength in that mission happen, if, if, if we want to have a healthy church, if we want to have healthy small groups, God has to breathe on them. And we'll prepare them the right way, and we'll read the scriptures the right way, and we will... Wait on the Lord, and those things all matter. We will always worship, whether we feel like it and we don't. And we will, you know, have fellowship and not neglect the getting together of the saints. We will confess to one another. We will do lots, hopefully more and greater things we will do. But none of it will matter if the Holy Spirit doesn't breathe on it. And so this is a huge, huge fundamental point here that we have to make. Like, if we want to survive in a world of hopelessness and not lose our, our compass for hope, we have to be able to tell the difference between good and God. There is a difference between good and God, and, and we like good, but we put our trust in God. We don't put our trust in the things that we do or the plans or the principles. Nothing good happens outside of God. I, I remember like one of the most, a very paramount part of my, of my life when I felt like really called to ministry, I was like, had this nephritis, this kind of like kidney inflammation that could have, you know, put me on dialysis within 10 years, and it was like, in the middle of the night, God awakened me. I mean, this isn't like my moleskin journal. I wasn't wanting or waiting or looking for this. Like, he just told me to preach. And yes, we pray, and yes, we had worship music, and yes, we talk about it and dream about it, but none of that can take the place. We are all dead and dying. Like, we all, none of it has life if the Holy Spirit doesn't breathe on it. None of it has life. And so, you know, even as a church, like we could copy the, the way that some other church does it. Or as, as a person, you could copy some plan or principle or read some book and do the thing, the good thing that the guy's telling you to do or the girl's telling you to do. But at the end of the day, if, if God's not breathing on it, it just won't work. 
And so at the end of the day, this, this posture has to be, God, I want to see good things, but I want, I want to see the Holy Spirit breathe on it. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, the son of David, he says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The second thing I want to talk about in terms of how to find hope on Christmas is Joseph and Mary found hope on Christmas because they discern the agreement between the scriptures and the spirit. They discern the, 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 the collision, the triangulation of those two things um, it wasn't just that the Holy Spirit nudged him, woke him up in a dream and talked to him, but he knew the scriptures enough so that when the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, Joseph, you are son of David, it instantly triggered that promise of covenant, of Davidic covenant, so he could affirm what the Spirit was saying. And so we don't have a ton of time to get into this one, but this is my question for you today off of this portion of scripture. If the Spirit spoke to you today, would you know if the scripture agreed with him? The reason we know what God is saying, and man doesn't live on the things that preceded the word of God. Man lives on what proceeds from the mouth of God. We live on the bread of life, meaning what he's saying, not just what he said. But the way that we can discern what he's saying is by knowing if it echoes with what he said. And so you'll scroll through you know, an Instagram post inevitably this week, and it'll have a really inspirational quote on there from a really trustworthy source, like a, you know, a preacher or a church or a you know, music movement or something like that. And, and then it becomes a really important thing because if you put your hope on places that will defer and places that aren't secure, your hope will be deferred and broken. A really important thing is like, okay, but what's the scripture that, that, that gives that thing authority? So I brought this up in, in the prayer room the other night, but like, remember Mall Cop, the movie with, uh, what's that actor's name? Paul, Paul Blart, yeah, Paul Blart, Mark, Mall Cop. I say it this way, like, there's two things that God has as he, as he guides us as, as king, and that is he has authority and he has power. And so what Mall Cop has is he has a badge, but he's got no gun. And so that's what the joke is. The whole joke, and we all know, is like there's security guards out there of like there's, there's authority. There's a ways to have authority without power. And I would argue that's what we do when we read the scripture, but we don't listen to the whisper of the Holy Spirit, and we don't trust in his power. And we just try to do holy things without leaning on the Holy Spirit. So there is a way to have authority without power. But if, if you just have the gun and you don't have the badge, you can have power without authority. And so this is what I, I would, it's good to, to, to have kind of like a holy, you know, clarity about this thing and, and, a, and a discipline and a filter about this thing is that we want to make sure that when, when we allow something to come into our heart and speak truth into our heart, that it's matched with both uh, power and authority. That, that it comes with this sense of the Scripture is breathing it, but the Spirit's feeding it. And we want to base our life off of that kind of a diet. And I can't tell you how many times, I guarantee you, you go through your Instagram page, and there's so much out there. Like, there's so much out there. And it comes from things that are Christian. But I will also tell you, I've read through some of these things before, and they are not from the Scriptures, or at least they're highly taken out of context. And they propose, you know, live your best life now and just dream it up and walk with God and figure it out. It's like, what? where's the sun? Where's the, the lamb? Where is the blood? Where is the salvation? Where is the power? Like all that stuff is really easy to miss. And so for example, we're in prayer the other night and, and, and let's just say you're in prayer and this didn't happen. This is just anecdotal. But let's just say, you know, you get this picture. Like I just sense that God is like wrapping me in a blanket which is a prophetic picture and it's very loving and very kind and very warm and actually can serve us well probably even for that moment. It has a lot of power to it. 
has the power of relationship and intimacy. But I want you to take a look at what verse 51, which is probably the closest verse that I can find that would match that idea, that the authority would match the power then in this case, and it would say, cleanse me with hyssop that I would become clean, wash me and I will be whiter in snow. So God is still covering me. It's still warm and it's still kind, but among those words also comes hyssop, which is sweet, cleanliness, which means he doesn't just cover me, but he cleans me. He doesn't just cover my sin, but he cleans me of my sin. That's different, right? That's a different picture. There's subtle nuances in the branding there. Wash me, whiter than snow, that the, that the covering costs something. That's what that scripture tells me. So see what happens? When I lend authority, when I lend scripture and, and, and the word to the spirit, those two things intersect. And what I'm trying to say is that David found hope on Christmas because he wasn't just on the Instagram feed. He was also in the scriptures. And when the spirit came and highlighted something, he knew how to name it, which leads us into the last thing. All this took place to fulfill the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. So the, so the spirit highlighted that Jesus was legitimate, but the scripture told them who he was. He wouldn't have known who he was if it wasn't apart from the scripture because this is what the prophecy had already said ahead of time. God's speaking, but he's already spoken, so we should listen to both the now and the then. And what he's already said ahead of time is that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and Mary uh, took Mary as his wife, and he named uh, the, the baby Jesus. And so, uh, and so what we see is that um, Abraham and David knew hope existed, but the Spirit and the Scripture revealed to Joseph and Mary where to find it and what to name it. And so the very last thing that we'll look at in terms of why I think or why we might see that Joseph and Mary discover hope on Christmas and why some of us don't is that Jesus uh, was revealed by the Scripture and by prophecy that God is a Father that is with us and a king that is for us. I want everybody to say, God is with us. And I want everybody to say, God is for us. To me, the two pillars of hope, and we can kind of land on this as I close and apply, but the two pillars of hope are just these two statements. God is, God is a father that is with us, and God is a king that is for us. God is the promise fulfilled. Jesus is the promise fulfilled of Abraham, which is God is relationally with us in the future forever. And, and he is also the promise of David fulfilled incarnate in the sense that he is king. He has authority. And some of us know Jesus as father, but we don't yet know him as his king. And we'll, we need to meet him there. And that's when hope will meet us. And some of us understand that God is the authoritarian, but we don't understand that God is father and that God is with us. But both of those wings are needed to fly. God is both with us and God is for us. We can't have hope with a God that's just with us and can't do anything about it. And we can't do anything with the fact that God is just for us but doesn't know us. That there's, we are designed as relational and responsible and representative beings to, to enjoy God and to represent him everywhere we go. And so we know a God that isn't just ambivalent or ambiguous. We know a God who is known to us. He is our father and he is our king. God is for us and God is with us. And so my application is simple this morning is, is do you know him in both of these places do you know him as Emmanuel, which means God is with us? One of the things that can haunt the human heart is the lie and the fear that God is not with us, that we are abandoned, that we are shipwrecked, that we are out to sea, that the circumstances of life uh, are, are, are presenting to us a false narrative that we are on our own, that God has forgotten about us. 
And God has spoken, not just with his word, with his son. Climbed into, climbed into the manger of hope. And when God says something, he cannot take it back. That's just an incredible thing just to think about. Like anything that you say can't be wrong and you can't take it back. We can and we can be wrong, but God can't. And when God put his son in that manger, it was a promissory note. Not only that hope is out there, but hope is in there. Hope is in the manger. Hope is with us and can never be taken from us. And so no matter where we go or who we are, God is, God is with us in Christ. He has never abandoned us. And I remember when I, was, when I was young, and this might help you, I don't know. You know, we trade testimonies and share and hopefully encourage one another and strengthen one another. I used to pray with an open chair across the room. And maybe you do that. Maybe, maybe you try that or maybe you already do that. And you drive your car and you can picture his body language. Because you know 80% of communication is body language. He is always with you. That's a scripturally based concept. And you have the ability to hear him. It says in John 10 that my sheep know me and they know me because I call them by name and they know my voice. And baby Oliver can pick up the phone and he knows my voice. He doesn't have to see my face to know my voice. And you know his voice. And one of the promissory notes is that Jesus is in the passenger seat. Jesus is walking with you everywhere you go. God is with you, with you but also he is a God that is for you. And this is, the, this is the prophecy that is a promise. It doesn't have to be speculative. And I'm not betting on the market here. Our future is for good and glory. The king is Jesus. He sits on the throne. He will not be taken off. And everything in your future is filled with good and glory. That's forever and ever, amen. Romans 8, there's nothing that can, that can cancel that. So I just want to get this picture because hope isn't a birthday candle. It's not wishing for a green light at, 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 the, um, at the stoplight. I want to get a picture of what this might look like. This is the biggest anchor that exists today. Uh, on the screen, um, it weighs like 100 tons, and, um, and it's just massive. And I want to show you the chain that actually goes to it, because the chain's even more amazing than that, because you can see the guy. I thought it was a Lego man. I thought it was part of, like, Alex's Lego set. Um, but this is the biggest anchor, and, uh, and this is the ironic thing that actually the first anchor, if you go back to it, the first anchor is actually a very historical anchor. I don't know if anybody has looked at this before or studied it, but I was really impressed because I just looked for the biggest anchor. It turns out the biggest anchor was for the Titanic, which is ironic, right? It's like you had the means for safety on board, but, but you didn't use it. You didn't utilize it. And, and this, is, this is, I think, a great picture for, for us to land on maybe today, is that hope is not a feeling. It's a fact. And the reason why we have hope isn't because of circumstance. If it was, we would always be hopeless. And it's not because of statistics, People that forge the future and people that move forward and bring the kingdom of God can't be people of statistics. We can be aware of statistics, but our authority is in the scripture and in the spirit and the spirit and the scripture. The only place for hope is in the spirit and in his scripture. And the authority that the spirit and the scripture speak to us, which is way greater than this anchor and this change, is that nothing will ever change about the fact that God is with you and that God is for you. And he will always be with you, and God will always be for you. And there's nothing you can do that can change that. And this is where our hope doesn't just become a whim or a flimsy whisper or, or, or something that's here today and gone tomorrow. This is where our hope is an anchor. Romans 5 talks about we actually rejoice in persecution and suffering. And I'm not saying that all of Christian life is persecution. Like, hope is manifested in positive outcomes. 
I believe there's good and glory for us at the Swamp Rabbit Trail. I believe there's good and glory for us in this place. I think we're going to see healings in our church as we seek them because that's what the kingdom of God does. I think we're going to see growth and, and, and revival. I think your family is going to see a great 2019 and things that are from the very hand of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the hand, hand of God. But if they don't and when they don't, it doesn't determine what our anchor is. And it doesn't determine where our hope comes from and who we hope in. Our hope is not a flimsy hope or a wish-wash hope. Our hope is a confident hope that God is for us and God is with us. I want us to stand. And uh, we actually don't have time to close in worship. And I'm sorry, Timothy, I was a little bit slow and laggard. That's such a British way to say it. I was laggard in my approach this morning. Sort of slumbery and laggard. But I want to put up this, um, this prayer. And I want to challenge you to put a hopeless situation in front of this prayer because I want to tell you this this morning, not because of my authority, but because of the authority of the, of the mouth that spoke these words, that your hopelessness doesn't stand a chance to this truth. And so what happens in Romans 5 is it just talks about the hope of glory helps us see character manifest into hope and hope can't be taken from us. That's the picture of seeing more and more circumstances come to pass and seeing this still be true. And you say, that's all you got? That's all that the circumstance can throw at me. That's all that the enemy can lie to me about. That's all you have. My anchor is so much more secure. My anchor is so much bigger. It's so much weightier, and it's so much more eternal and long-lasting. This is the prayer that is spoken. These things are true. We are hopeless when we don't have a father, when we're abandoned. But that's not true. We do have a father, and we've never been alone. We're hopeless if he's not powerful and not complete. We're hopeless if he's a liar, but he's not. And so our circumstance is a liar instead of him. We would have been hopeless if there was a lack of purpose in his will being done, but he wouldn't ask us to pray for something that he wasn't doing. His will is being executed in your life right now. His will is being executed. You are nearer his will than ever before because his kingdom is coming. So we ask him for this. Pray in your heart. Pray, pray just wherever you are. Give your circumstance over to these realities. The earth as is in heaven, give us today our daily bread, not weekly or monthly, daily bread, every breath, every day. Every day he's giving you exactly what he needs. If you, if you had it, you need it. If you don't have it, you don't need it. So you have enough and you are enough. Walk in that. That's where hope comes from. Don't let somebody take your hope. They might take your money. They might take you know, your, your, your stuff, but they can't take your hope because he's promised it and he's anchored it in your life. He's, he's holding you when you're not holding him. You're forgiven I want to speak to you with the authority of the Spirit in the Scriptures today to say you are forgiven in Jesus' name. And there's no sin that's holding you back from your purpose and from his pleasure in your life. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You don't have to earn anything. You're forgiven. And we also, have, uh, we also forgive our debtors and lead us not in temptation. There's no temptation that's known to man that he didn't know. He's overcome all temptation. He wouldn't give you a test if you didn't know that you could pass it. If you trust in him, there's... There's overcoming of any temptation. That temptation doesn't have you. It's canceled. It's conquered. He's always for you. He's always with you. For thy is the power and the glory forever and amen. There's, there's, there's no victory for the evil one. The evil one has been defeated. He stepped on the head of the serpent. It's over. There's no victory. It's not if there's hope. It's when there's hope. He will win. He will bring. He will wipe every tear dry. Every knee will bow and he will conquer. He will bring his kingdom now or later, but it is impending. His kingdom is impending. It is coming. And so I just, I just, um, 
I pray on my behalf, and I invite you to pray on your behalf. Father, I thank you that you um, are with me, and you hold me up when I'm weak, and that if I need to know something, you're going to tell me. And I live a life that doesn't have to figure it out, but that can faith it out, that can walk with you. I want to live a life that does good things, but I want to live a life that's waiting on God, that needs the Holy Spirit, and I thank you that you're king, that you're not just a nice, kind father that cares for me, but you're a king who is um, bringing goodness and glory into this world, and, uh, and statistics will fall down in your presence, and you are bringing a preferred future and a preferred hope for your people. So I thank you for the thrill of hope that visits us in Christmas as you crawled in to that manger and asked that it would visit us afresh, Jesus, the way that it visited Mary and, the, and, and, and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men eventually, that you would visit us in a visceral hope this Christmas, that you would do damage and attack to the assignment of hopelessness and you would surrender that, that, that hopelessness to worship. It would give way to, um, to a life uh, that, that, is, that is drenched in the reality of the kingdom of God, that God is for us and God is with us. We love you and seek you in this Christmas and celebrate you because of the hope we have. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.